You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Amen. Please be seated. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians and uh, chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 11. It's on page 1166. I don't know if you uh, ever feel like a fool. Um, Have you ever done something that makes you look really, really foolish? And you think, why did I do that? And then it's too late. Uh, I have done that many, many times. And you, you just think, what was, I, what was I thinking of? Well, Paul here talks about making a fool of himself. Some of us also, perhaps you might feel very weak, very worn down, very beat up. Welcome to the world of the Apostle Paul. And welcome to the world of uh, many of us. Paul has been under fierce attack from within the church. And he feels compelled to defend himself. And he feels stupid or foolish doing that. Incidentally, this is really strange. This passage that we're going to look at, it's really strange. We will get on to reading it in a moment. But, you know, if you and I wrote a religious book, if we wrote the Bible, here's one of the problems with the Bible. I think it's a problem and I think it's a strength. One of the problems is you read something like 2 Corinthians and a huge part of this book is about the trouble that Paul was facing from criticism within the church and difficulties about money and difficulties about sex and difficulties about leadership quarrels. And you would think, if I was writing a devotional book, I I wouldn't be putting this kind of stuff in it. I wouldn't have such a major emphasis on it. And yet, that's what I love about the Bible. Here's a letter dealing with disagreement, argument, personality clashes, misunderstandings, and it fits perfectly the world in which we live. This is not Disneyland. I think another issue here is some are... uh, Some people's faith gets really shaken by what they see in the world the immense cruelty of humanity, just the sheer injustice of so many things, the burden of sickness. You know, for me, I just so look forward to heaven when there's no cancer and when there's no beat up people. It's just horrendous and that really shakes a lot of people up. But also what shakes a lot of people up is when they come into the church And maybe they become believers because they see the love that believers have for one another. And then as they go on, they find that there's fighting in the church and that tempts them to turn away. And sometimes you meet, and I regularly meet, very disillusioned, very discouraged Christians whose faith is full of doubts and fears because of what they perceive in the world and what they perceive within the church. Now, 2 Corinthians, none of this is new. And a huge part of this, this is, I was uh, thinking about this this week and 
Uh, Annabelle has her iPad and we were driving up to Port Mahomic and we managed to work out how, thanks to the technical genius of my daughter, uh, how to connect it to the car speakers so that we could listen to um, Tim Keller, who else, as we were going up the road. And uh, he just had, he had an illustration that just really helped me and I hope it will help you. It's actually not his, it's uh, C.S. Lewis's. It's from God in the Dock. C.S. Lewis's book, God in the Dock. And he says this, imagine a set of people all living in the same building. Half of them think it is a hotel. The other half think it's a prison. Those who think it a hotel might regard it as quite intolerable. And those who thought it was a prison might decide it was really surprisingly comfortable. It's your perception, the perception that we have of things. It's what you and I expect. And that's what, what we look at. You could come into church this morning and you, you've been told, this church has a thousand people, there are people queuing out the door. And you came in and you look around and you say, oh, I'm a bit disappointed, the balcony's not full. Or you could have heard, this church is as dead as a dodo, there's only ten people. And you come in and you go, oh, I'm really surprised. Because of the expectation that you have, you will have a different reaction. You meet somebody and you've been told about them, they are really harsh, they are really hard. And they're actually very pleasant to you. And you go, wow, I'm really surprised. But on the other hand, you're told, this person is the most loving person you've ever met in the whole history of the universe. And you go, and you say, oh, that's a bit of a disappointment. It's a bit of a wet blanket. I wasn't expecting that. It's expectation. And I think that's a key in understanding when you're looking at the church. What do you expect? What are you looking for? Because we are... Uh, as we go through this, you'll see we are, we are sinners. Paul says that his speech is foolish. He shouldn't have had to defend himself, but he did. So let's read the first part. If I have made a fool of myself, no, if I have made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it, I ought to have been commended by you, for I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Let's think first of all about Paul's ministry among the Corinthians. And notice what's interesting here is he says he's nothing. Verse 11, even though I am nothing. His critics have said that. They said, who's Paul? He's nothing. Nothing compared with us. And Paul says, you're right. I am Nothing. But he wants to remind the Corinthians what he'd already written to them. 1 Corinthians 1.26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And note this. And the things that are not. The things that are nothing. To nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. As you go on in the Christian life, you will get battered, black and blue, in so many things. And you'll come to realize that you can actually say, in the eyes of this world, 
and even by my own standards and by the standards of many people within the church, I am I'm nothing. I really am nothing. And the gospel comes to us with this wonderful clarity and says, yes, but God takes the nothings of this world to nullify the great things of this world. And in Christ, you are everything. In Christ, you have righteousness, holiness, and redemption. You don't boast in your own abilities. You don't boast in your own character and in your own gifts. Paul recognizes that. But he's not going to subordinate himself to his critics, the proud, disdainful super apostles. Look what he says. He's an apostle. Paul begins 1 Corinthians 1.1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sothenus. 2 Corinthians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul says, I'm nothing, but God called me to be an apostle. You made yourself apostles. You're setting yourselves up. You're trying to be these super spiritual, super religious people. But God called me and he called me to bring the gospel to you. And he is reminding them of that. Secondly, he says he persevered. He kept going. The things that mark an apostle's signs and wonders were done among you with great perseverance. We'll come on to the signs and wonders in a moment, but let's think about this perseverance. The perseverance is not that he kept going in terms of performing miracles. He didn't say, I did some miracles, that wasn't enough for you, so I did some more miracles. Boy, did I get tired. I got out of bed in the morning and thought, I have to do some more miracles. That's not what it means by I persevered. He, say, he did do miracles, but his perseverance was his perseverance in communicating the gospel and perseverance in the face of fierce opposition. What he's saying is in contrast to the super apostles, he's saying, yeah, they're super stars, you know, they're, they're the heroes. But I, he said, I was weak, I was scared, I was frightened. And what did you see? You saw me keep going. You saw me persevered. My life was stretched to the limit. Second Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. The mark of his apostleship was that he persevered, he kept going. It does seem a strange thing, you know, for those of us who are Christians, we're thinking, right, we're a Christian and we want to be this and we want to be that, we want to do this. Do you know that the best thing that you will ever hear on the day of judgment is well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You kept going, you kept going, you kept going. That's the mark of the Christian you know, you, you might want to say, well, God has given me this and God has done that. And how do I know I'll keep going to the end? You, you might not know. But God gives his people perseverance. And Paul says, that's what I've got. That's what I had. I'm still here. I'm still proclaiming the word. And then he performed signs and wonders. He did do that. That's recorded in Acts 
Well, actually, it's not. Acts 18 is, if we're not going to read just now, but the whole of Acts 18, or Acts 18, 1 to 18, rather, is, is when Paul came to Corinth, this town in Greece. Acts 18 says nothing about the signs and wonders. They were performed. Paul says it here. But Acts 18 doesn't mention that because they were not the most important thing. What was the most important? He taught them the word of God and he brought them Jesus. Verses 4 and 5 of Acts 18. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And then on to verse 11. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a a vision. He was frightened, he was scared, he was discouraged. And he said, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one's going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Paul says, that's what I did. I came to you. I did the, the acts and wonders, but I persevered. What did I persevere in? I kept teaching you about Jesus. I taught about the word of God. And that's how you came to believe. And that's how you're in this church. And some of you think that you've advanced and moved on beyond that. That you're beyond the word. And he's saying, no, you've got to persevere in the word. Paul is in in a sense saying, it's not the miracles, it's the battle scars. It's the conversions. It's the fruit of the word that matters. And then he goes on to say, not only did I persevere, but, and now he enters into sarcasm, and I love the fact that there's sarcasm and irony in the Bible, uh, because every time someone says, well, that's a bit sarcastic, I'm going, yep, just like Paul and Jesus and Elijah, uh, I'm in their category, because he does a wee bit of sarcasm here where uh, he talks about um, how were you inferior to the other church except that I was never a burden to you. Forgive me for not being a burden to you. The one thing he failed to do with the Corinthians was he failed to charge them money. 2 Corinthians 11. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? And we saw uh, a couple of weeks ago how for a teacher in those days not to charge, there's something wrong. You know, if you're getting, given something free, you think there's something wrong with this. You get an, a, a, a magazine and it's free and you go, yeah, sure, it's free because it's full advertising. You're trying to get me, you know, to charge for something indicated value. And Paul was being accused of, you're not a very good teacher. You don't charge anything. Paul says, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. He's saying, I took money from Macedonia. I took money from Ephesus so that I could preach to you freely. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. So he's defending himself in that way. He's saying, I am nothing. He's saying, I kept going. He's saying, I performed what an apostle should do, signs and wonders, but also more importantly, 
I communicated to you the word of God and I was never a burden to you. Never took anything from you. He then goes on. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. And I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Now what's Paul's burden in all of this? He does not want their possessions. He wants them. He's not interested in having what they've got. He wants them. Calvin says it is the part of a genuine and upright pastor not to seek to derive gain from his sheep, but to endeavor to promote their welfare. Incidentally, Calvin then goes on to talk about how it's also a bad idea for someone to try and get disciples to follow them for their own ambition, but that they should be primarily concerned for the welfare of their souls. And you can see that that is Paul's burden in in the whole of this letter. That he's burdened for the souls, for the spiritual well-being, for the eternal welfare of his congregation. And that, that is a burden. It is an incredible burden to think that there are people who you preach the word of God to who might go to hell. That's a burden that's impossible, impossible to carry. To think that there are people who say, I don't believe because of what he said or what they did or what happened in that church. Paul said, I don't want your money. I don't want your possessions. Verse 15, look at the extent of of the love that he has. I find this extraordinary. I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. He says that he is a a spiritual father. Uh, Emma Jane, don't listen to this, please. Children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. That's, you know, he's he's saying a principle. He's saying, what's your job as a mom? What's your job as a dad? You spend for your children. You don't care that you're a taxi service or a banker or or, or that your your whole life is geared towards looking after your children. That's what you're going to do. They call you from the ends of the earth. You will go. They're your children. They have an accident. You will go and be at their bedside in hospital. You give up. You you will give up your job. You will give up everything for your children. And he says it shouldn't really be the other way around. And Paul says to the Corinthians, "You, you treat me like dirt. You despise me in so many ways. But to me, you are my children. I brought you the gospel." I'm willing to expend everything I've got, including my life, in order to bring you God's word. And he challenges them. He says, well, you love me less then. If I love you more, will you love me less? And you'll notice in his defense, he's not going, right, I'm going to clobber you. I'm going to show you guys who's boss. He's actually saying, I'm going to show you how much I love you. Will you love me less because of that? 
because I'm that stupid and that weak that I will love you? Was he tricking them? Because that's what they say. Did I exploit you with any of the men I sent you? When I sent you Titus, were they a burden to you? Not at all. Do you know, one of the things that we need to realize is how desperately wicked and deceitful the human heart is. My heart and your heart. We can justify anything. It's back to expectations. It's back to perceptions. Here's how it goes. We can put ourselves in a position where we've got our own analysis. We've got our own understanding. And so we will find a way to justify what we think so that our opinion is always the right one. Paul doesn't take money. So instead of the Corinthian super apostles and others saying, well, we thank you, Paul, for that. They say, oh, that's Paul. He's a clever guy. He's conning you. Nobody gives anything for free. He's tricking you. And at that level, Paul must have known that no matter what he said, and that's why he's so impassioned here, and that's why I think he he says things even under the guidance of the spirit that he regards as foolish at one level because he shouldn't have had to say them. But he says things that are so strong because he knows that he's on a hiding to nothing. He takes money, he's going to be condemned. He doesn't take money, he's going to be condemned. It is, uh, as I often say, it's like arguing with a conspiracy theorist. It's almost always impossible. You know, you just, you just can't get your way, you can't get round it. Um, I'll give you a, a, just an example on the internet just now. Uh, there are some people who, and one or two people have, I've, who've, who've written me and I've been in discussion with, and they're convinced that the whole referendum result was rigged. And I'm going to them, no, it wasn't. You don't have to agree with it, but it wasn't. But no, 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 they've got proof and they've got this. And honestly, they're like people who believe that there are aliens who live in Monifith or something. You know, they, they actually believe it. And, and everything you say, it doesn't matter. That's just an alien conspiracy. You know, you can't do anything with that. And you know, that's what we do. And you and I, I suspect, sometimes we're so hard-hearted, we don't even see that that's what we're doing. Though it, it's back to this, expert, we're, we're turning something and, and making it what it's not in order just to suit what we are. And Paul is so burdened with all of that. And then he has a purpose, and he states what his purpose is. And it's interesting because he completely, almost it seems, contradicts himself. Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? No, of course not, he says. We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And he says, this is what we were doing. Everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. What was Paul's purpose? It wasn't to defend himself, but it was to strengthen them, to use an old word. It was for edification. It was to build them up. Incidentally, for those of you who are believers, that is a great question for you to sit down at the end of the day and say, why did I do that? Why did I say those words? Why would I speak to that person? 
Why did I challenge them? Why did I confront them? Why did I talk about them? Why did I deal with that? Can you honestly say I did it in order to strengthen them? I did it in order to build them up. Because for many of us, our instinct is to protect ourselves by diminishing others. But Paul says, no, I want to strengthen. That's not a weakness. Because in order to strengthen the faith of the Corinthians, he does have to expose the false doctrine of the false apostles. To let them carry on in the same way would have been the easy option. I've done my day. I've, I've spoken the word of God to you. I've been with you. I've persevered. Now you get on with it. You make your bed and lie in it. I'm off to pastors new. That's not what Paul said. He said, I, I, I've got involved in this, in this game. I've got involved in this argument. I've got involved in these letters back and forward. Because I want to edify you. And then he, he twists it even more. This is twisting it, if you like, untwisting it. So it's the reality of the situation. And Paul says, it's not me that's in the dog. You're accusing me. It's not me, it's you. You're in the dog. Why? Here, he's talking about excommunication. He's talking about church discipline. When I come to you, I'm afraid I'll find you not as I want you to be. Not as believers serving Christ, but as those who are destroying the church. And you won't find me as you want me to be, this meek, mild apostle. You will find, and he's talking about what he's spoken of earlier in 1 Corinthians, how he would put someone out of the fellowship, which is excommunication. See, we don't like that. We like the idea, let's smooth things over, let's keep things calm. And Paul says, no, this love disciplines. That's the point. And, and he, he wasn't doing this in great delight. It pained him. He was afraid that this would be the case. And he was embarrassed that it would be humiliating for him to turn up at the church, to find it riven by factions, and this church that he'd been boasting about to everyone, that he'd been taking money for, for himself to preach the gospel there, that he'd find out this church that he'd gloried in wasn't so glorious after all. And he was scared that he would be humiliated by that. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul instructed them, expel the wicked person from among you. There was a case of gross sexual immorality which they approved of. And he said, no, no, no. If they don't repent, expel them from among you. Troubles had obviously continued. And look at the list of things that are up there. I fear... That there may be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, faction, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. That's not the Christian church. We, we, we all hold hands together and sing kumbaya and love one another and we sit around a common meal and, and we're all so sweet and so nice and you'll never hear a crossword in the church. Yeah, if we're hypocritical liars, because you may not hear it in the church, but you'll hear it yak, 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 gossip behind people's backs. You'll hear it in the subtle innuendo. It won't be the raging fight that someone might have in a pub. But it'll be the subtle undermining and cursing through blessing, inverted commas. And Paul says, no, this goes on in churches. We've got to realize that. 
There's jealousy, outbursts of anger, faction, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And I'm going to say this to you. If you're not a Christian and you become a Christian, or if you're a fairly new Christian and you know, you've been converted and the grass is green and the sky is blue and, and everything is wonderful. And then you come into a church and you come across Christians who fight with one another and who argue and there's bits of gossip and there's power games and there's all these kinds of stuff. And you think, oh no, this is, this is not right. That's back to the expectations. Of course it's not right, but we're sinful and that's what will happen I don't know of a single church that I've read of. I don't know of a single church leader of the great church leaders that we exemplify who have not faced phenomenal opposition because of their own sin and because of other people's sin. And I just go through this list. I went through it. I thought, okay, jealousy. Is there je- am, I, am I jealous of anybody? Fits of rage. Do I lose my temper? Maybe not do I shout and yell at people. That might be better, to be honest than the inner fits of rage which store up and we go to bed angry and we wake up angry and it eats away and it seethes and it seethes and it seethes until one day it's going to come out in an awful way. Selfish ambition. Am, am I, do I have a self... The, the Greek idea there is the conduct of someone who's thinking only about themselves, who's just out for what they can get. It is all about them. It's the supreme lack of love. The person who's always talking about love because they want to be seen to be loving, but it's still about them. They're not loving. Am I like that? Slander. So easy. Never hit anyone in my life, but boy, have I ripped them to shreds through what I've said about them. Gossip. Arrogance. No one's going to get me. No one's going to hurt me. No one's going to disturb me. I'm going to get my way. And disorder. Because that what all of that creates. And Paul says, this is devastating to the church. And it's humiliating for me because I preach the gospel to you. I boasted about you. And if I come and I find this is what the result of my preaching is, I'm I'm just going to feel like that. And then it gets even worse because you'll see Uh, They've not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Corinth was an incredibly, in in modern terms, we'd call it a sexually liberated society. In biblical terms, it would be a sexually oppressed society. And people were converted out of that. Paul says some of you were homosexual offenders. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were, and he, he lists that. And he's saying to the Christians, you know, my first letter to you, we had to deal with that. You were, you were boasting about the fact that a man could sleep with his stepmother. He said, no, no, this is wrong, this is wrong. And he taught them. But here he's saying, I'm afraid that you're going to slip back, that you've not really repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which you have indulged. Because here's what I think he's hinting at. And what I think does happen is that those of us who've become Christians, we kind of... Get rid of the biggies, the big sins out there. You know, we're not going out and getting drunk every Friday night. We're not going out and, and committing adultery. But the things that caused us to do that are still in our heart, and they're just expressed in different ways. In other words, we're religious sinners, as opposed to just out-and-out sinners. We're religious sinners. And there's an element in that in which it is even more sinful. I'm a preacher of God's word. I can be selfishly ambitious. 
that is far more devastating as a preacher of God's word than if I wasn't a preacher of God's word and I was ambitious in terms of running a business or something. So Paul's purpose was not to defend himself but to edify them and to strengthen them by, by bringing this all back to Christ. Now, some basic applications of all of this. Um, how do we live in the light of all this? Love the ugly people of God. Now, I'm sorry for calling you that, uh, but I'm, I'm calling myself that too. That's what we are. We are, of course, the beautiful people in lots of ways. The bride of Christ is extraordinarily beautiful. But until we get to heaven we will also be the ugly sister. And that is all being worked out. Willie still, remember him once saying, you're called to love the people of God and they're a pretty rum lot. That's how it is. Calvin again, let us know the disposition of a true and genuine pastor when he says that he will look upon the sins of others with grief. And undoubtedly the right way of acting is this, that every Christian shall have his church enclosed within his heart and be affected with its maladies as if they were his own, sympathize with its sorrows and bewail its sins. Someone in the church does something that's wrong, commits sin that you see and others see. What do you do? Are you angry? Are you disgusted? Are you mocking? Are you furious? Are you full of that wonderful German word schadenfreude saying, oh, I knew they were going to do that. It's not me. You won't catch me going there. I warned you about them. Or are you heartbroken that a brother or sister has fallen and stumbled? Are you heartbroken? Mark Driscoll has just resigned from his charge in the United States. For those of you who don't know him, um, very famous pastor, very controversial figure. Uh, many of us were blessed and encouraged by aspects of his ministry and struggled with some, some other aspects of it. And it's those other aspects that have been his downfall. It saddens me that there are people tweeting and Facebooking and emailing all over the place saying, got him, knew that was going to happen. So smug and self-righteous, we warned you. No. If we had any concern at all, we would weep. How do you react to other people's sins? You've got to love the ugly people of God. You've got to genuinely love the sinner. And then you've got to expect trouble. I love this from Samuel Wilkes. A Christian never sleeps in the fire or the water but grows drowsy in the sunshine. Why does God let us have trouble? Because we go drowsy in the sunshine. When trouble comes, that's when our faith is really tested. I've told you these things so that in me, says Jesus, you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. What are you expecting? What did Jesus, when you became a Christian, what did Jesus say to you? He said, you're going to have trouble. You're in big trouble now. A lot of trouble. Again, forgive me for quoting from the, the Keller sermon, but he said, you know, here's the problem. Before you became a Christian, you only had one enemy. That was God. God was your enemy. After you became a Christian, you had a whole host of enemies. Sin, self, the devil. So many different enemies. You are going to have trouble as a Christian. What did you expect? Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? We'll have trouble but you'll never be separated from the love of Jesus. Nothing, nothing that can happen to you or that you can do 
will separate you from the love of Christ when you come to know him. Third application, defend the servants of God. Do not entertain an accusation, says Paul to Timothy, against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Paul knew that experience. No one, he said, stood by my side. No one stood by my side. The servants of God, are they beyond criticism? Not at all. Paul says, I'm nothing. Paul was a sinner. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. They are not beyond criticism at all. But this is important. Satan is the great accuser. You're not. That's not what you or I are called to do. We are not called to accuse. Satan will accuse and we are not called to judge. God is the judge. So defend the servants of God. Yes, expose false apostles. Yes, challenge wrong doctrine. Yes, challenge wrong behavior. But don't set yourself up as judge and jury over every motive and action of every Christian leader. Live by the Spirit. So I say, says Paul, live by the Spirit. You'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Live by the Spirit. That doesn't mean that you're going around speaking in tongues, casting out demons, healing people left, right and center. Those are the gifts of the Spirit. Or some of the gifts. Living by the Spirit is that your old sinful nature which is still within you and which is battling against you, you crucify because you keep going to Christ, you keep preaching the gospel to yourself, you keep realizing I am nothing but in Christ I am everything. And that brings us to the end, the, back to expectations, have the right expectations. See, the tendency might be for someone to say, yeah, you know, that's right. I don't expect much from anybody. I expect the church to be rubbish. And I expect this, this not to work. And I expect these relationships to fall apart. And that's what you expect. And guess what? That's what happens. It's easy to be cynical and superior. It's easy to have a low view of yourself. And it's not a good thing because the low view of yourself is not humility It's still focused on yourself. You're still basing life thinking about yourself. You can think you're the greatest person in the world. You can think you're the worst person in the world. It's still all about you and both are wrong. How can we live so that we don't have this fantasy view of things and we're not cynically depressed all the time? How can we live like, well, the answer is surely this. Romans 5, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. 
And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, in the expectation of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering, it produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Some of you are very beat up inside yourselves because you had great expectations of yourselves, especially when you became a Christian. And what you found is that the old man inside is still alive and that the anger and that the lust and the jealousies and the sexual sin and so on, it comes back. You never ever meant to go back and look at another pornography website again, but you did. You never meant to lose your temper, but you did. You never meant all these different things as a believer because you know that they're wrong, but you did them. And your expectations have been dashed. But you need to be more realistic. You need to realize that God says, yes, I know what you're like. I know your heart. I knew what you would do. I know. Get your expectations away from yourself. And look towards Jesus Christ. And then you crucify the self. When you're looking to Christ, it changes your perspective on everything else. There's an old phrase um, the Puritans used, mortify the flesh. Now mortify the flesh, it's not, it's not cutting yourself, it's not locking yourself away. You only put to death if the new life comes in, because that's just what mortify means, put to death. And I just ask, I ask myself, and I ask you if you're a, a Christian and you're struggling with personal sin, you're struggling with criticism from others, you're struggling with hassle going on in the world and stuff in your life. I just ask simply, what's your expectation? Because I, I want to encourage you to have all your hope placed upon Christ. And I do want to say this to those of you who are not yet Christians. I mean, it doesn't sound the most attractive life in the world, does it? You know, you say, Anger, jealousy, all that stuff going on. You say, oh, I, I, I want to go and live in perfect world. Uh, it doesn't exist anywhere. You can go to a cult and they'll tell you it does. It doesn't exist like that until you get to heaven where there's no more sin, sorrow, and suffering. But at least in the church you get this. You get reality and you get solutions and you get love and you get Jesus Christ overcoming all that sin. I mean this, I have no idea how anyone could live without Jesus Christ. I am at a stage in my life where if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I, I, don't, I wouldn't even know how to exist. I really wouldn't. And I don't understand. And I tell you this, the only reason I think that you can live, that you can exist, is because you are being unrealistic. You're not seeing the real picture. You're not seeing how things are. The gospel is amazing because the gospel says to you, you think you're bad? You're so much worse than you think you are. You are far worse than you could possibly imagine. But the gospel is good news, which says you are loved beyond anything you could even dare to hope for. You think of the, the greatest thing that you could hope for, and you've not even got off the ground when it comes to the, the hope and the expectation that comes in Jesus Christ. So the reason for you to become a Christian is there's nothing else. 
There's no one else who can deal with life as it really is. And there's no one else who can rescue you and deal with you. Craig spoke about that last Sunday morning. About that new birth and that new life. And that's what's offered to you in Jesus. Please take it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And thank you that even in such a difficult passage where it seems that there's so much heartbreak and sorrow and suffering and human misery, even amongst your people, that there is still set forth this glorious hope that you love us and you gave yourself for us and that the accuser may come, but the gates of hell will not stand against your church. And that there may be sickness and there may be jealousies and there may be all kinds of problems and concerns and worries and hassles and discouragements and mental health issues and physical health issues and yet Jesus is sovereign over all and no trouble shall ever separate us from his love. Grant, O Lord, that each of us would see and know that. In your name we ask it. Amen. Let's finish by singing about that love of Christ. When you see how much of a mess we're in, you're thinking, what is going to take away that mess? And the answer is nothing but the deep, deep love of Jesus. Let's stand and sing. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. And then please remain standing for the benediction. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.